Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As with all things, it looks very different in retrospect than how it felt as it was happening. In the early days of the pandemic, I could see what was going on both here in the U.S. and in Europe and started talking openly about how we were far behind, we had been caught flat-footed, that we had missed a window of opportunity to really get this virus under control. If that voice sounds familiar, it's probably because you've heard it before. Starting in the early spring of 2020, and basically ever since. My name is Ashish Jha, and I'm the COVID-19 response coordinator for the White House. Dr. Ashish Jha didn't intend to become a household name. When the pandemic began, he was head of the Harvard Global Health Institute. But as a public health expert who'd spent a long time researching pandemic preparedness, he was in high demand as the novel coronavirus hit and kept on hitting. Oh, the first few months, March through June, was just crazy. I probably was getting about two to 300 media requests a day. And basically, it would start at 6 a.m. and go till 11 p.m., initially seven days a week, until I just realized I can't keep going. So I started taking Saturdays off, which was good. Ashish was on TV, on the radio, on Twitter, basically everywhere you looked or listened. He was filling a void that, in his view, never should have existed. I really thought the primary source of information, good information, would be coming from CDC on a daily basis. In some ways, that just never happened. And what initially was a couple of weeks of media just exploded into months and months and months. And at some point, three, four months in, I actually wondered, is this all useful The public health response to an emergency like the COVID-19 pandemic is multifaceted. One aspect is communicating with the public, as Ashish found himself doing. Another, of course, is what to do about the emergency. And this is where things can get tricky for scientists, like Ashish and like myself, who rely heavily on data. There's no question in my mind that there were a lot of missed opportunities for gathering more evidence. And it means two and a half years later, we're still making certain policy decisions with less than ideal data. From the Freakonomics Radio Network, this is Freakonomics MD. I'm Bapu Jenna. Today on the show, my friend and former colleague, Dr. Ashish Jha, talks about making the transition from academics to politics. One of the things that you realize is you can have absolutely brilliant ideas that just cannot be implemented We'll discuss why some of those ideas aren't necessarily going as planned. And also, what can happen when you lean into the unknown? I think acknowledging uncertainty doesn't create panic. I actually think it breeds trust.
Hey, how are you? How's it going? Good, good. How are you? Good. You're looking good. You know, I'm always looking good. Yes, that's what I say about (laughs) myself. (laughs) Before he became the COVID-19 response coordinator at the White House, or the COVID czar, as some people call it, Dr. Ashish Jha had an even more important job. You and I co-taught Quality of Healthcare in America, a super popular course. I'm assuming the popularity was because of me and not because of you. I just have to say that after you left, and I'm, I'm not saying this is causally related to you leaving, the evaluations, they just went through the roof. You've never seen them so high. <laughs> I am deeply skeptical of this. <laughs> Ashish was born in India, where he lived until he was nine. His family made their way to Toronto and then to New Jersey. He went to medical school at Harvard, where he also got a master's degree in public health. After that, Ashish spent a lot of time thinking about American health policy and eventually landed on two issues that he thought were interesting and weren't getting enough attention. One was the public health effects of climate change, and the second was pandemics and pandemic preparedness. Just became concerned, convinced that we were heading towards a pandemic and the world wasn't ready. When the pandemic he was convinced was coming finally arrived, it didn't exactly resemble what he'd anticipated. What I worried about, which I think many of us who were in the field of thinking about pandemics, what we worried about was a really deadly influenza pandemic. And the mental model I had of both how it would begin, how it would spread, and how we would respond to it, some of that mental model held true and some of it was just inadequate. As the pandemic unfolded, Ashish was compelled to communicate. He took to the airwaves and to social media, laying out what we knew and what we didn't know about COVID. He did it calmly and plainly, and people started not only to notice, but to rely on him. I started saying to friends, I think I'm going to pull back on this, and got a response from people that made me realize what I was doing, what other people were doing, was useful because in the term public health is the public and engaging the public, helping the public understand the moment we're in and how to respond and how to keep themselves safe is a really important public health intervention. It was odd to realize that this wasn't a side thing that I was doing, that it was actually a really important part of a public health response was to communicate directly to the public. Ashish left Harvard in 2020 and became dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University where he stayed until March of this year, when he went to the White House. It's his most public role to date and a detour from academia. But figuring out in which direction the country should go next with the pandemic requires reflecting on where we've been. I wrote a piece at the end of January of 2020 about the novel coronavirus. And there were parts of that piece that I go back and read and cringe at because they were really important issues that I and I think many public health experts got wrong. So most of us thought that the things that would be determinative for how well a country would do is your laboratory capacity, your healthcare system, your ability to manage the disease per se. What I think I did not appreciate, and I think a lot of people did not appreciate, was the importance of issues like social cohesion, of depoliticization of a pandemic response. And I think in that context, yeah, this pandemic has turned out in many ways to be much more challenging than 
what I had envisioned might be something that America deals with, if you had asked me this question five years ago. If you had that foresight, what do you think you would have done differently? Because what you're referring to is not a scientific problem, per se, or an operational problem. How do you ensure adequate ICU beds, ventilators, start a process for developing and manufacturing a vaccine, ensuring a supply of masks? You're almost talking about a social problem, which in part relies on trust. It is about trust in my mind. There's some empirical evidence that if you look at countries that have done well in the pandemic versus countries that have struggled more, by whatever metric you want to use, trust in institutions and trust in each other are two of the major factors that really differentiate high-performing versus low-performing countries. And thinking back to five, seven years ago, when I started doing work on pandemic preparedness, we spent a lot of time thinking about laboratory capacity and healthcare workforce, which are important. I think I would have put a lot more emphasis on understanding what kind of trust do populations have in their institutions? How do you build up that trust? How do you, in the beginning of a pandemic, when there is so much uncertainty, communicate more effectively to people, both what you know and don't know? There's no question about it. There was a lot of communication in the early days that conveyed way more certainty than people had from our public health officials. And I think sometimes that desire to offer assurance, which is a very good desire, can lead people to overstate what they actually know. And I think acknowledging uncertainty actually doesn't create panic. I actually think it breeds trust. So there are a lot of lessons here that I hope we're going to be able to deploy for future pandemics. I think it was Francis Collins made this point a while ago, which is that we spend so much time thinking about how to diagnose disease, treat disease, but there's a fundamental behavioral problem that is hard to solve, which is if you've got vaccines, if you've got treatments for a disease, how do you get people to take those medications? And as doctors, we think about that a lot. And we know adherence to medications that are life-saving is almost 50 to 60% in some diseases. And so... We're thinking about all the other things that had to be done, but didn't really realize that one of the escape hatches, the biggest one, would be vaccines. And if we didn't lay the framework for people to say, all right, when this comes out, I've got to be ready to go, that sort of seems to me like a huge loss. And I don't really know what we could have done differently to prevent that. When I look at countries, for instance, that are even more vaccinated than us and ask what's different, you tend to see across a broad spectrum of political leaders, religious leaders, social leaders, everybody fighting over all sorts of issues, but not fighting over vaccines, not fighting over whether vaccines are effective and safe. That has not been so consistent here, right? We have seen a lot of prominent people use their platform to undermine vaccines for whatever kind of reasons and gains, but ultimately ends up making it harder for our country to be as protected as it needs to be. And so something that we need to really spend more time thinking about is how do we build a broader coalition of people who can fight it out over all sorts of policy issues, but when it comes to key basic public health things like vaccines and treatments, maybe that's a bit more of a neutral ground where we don't always have to disagree and fight with each other. I remember in the initial stage of the pandemic when we were talking about how your life had changed, you had entered into a public sphere that you hadn't been in before. The media stuff was public. I was also spending an enormous amount of time talking to governors, talking to state health officials, because the public health response really had become a state-by-state response. 
and a lot of leaders at the state level were struggling to get good advice from federal officials, weren't getting the kind of data and the evidence. And so I would say I spent almost as much time talking to policymakers as I did the media. And that continued all through the fall of 20. Things changed on the public policy side after President Biden came into office. The calls from governors, calls from states really slowed way down. That changed. But obviously, helping the public understand where things were going remained an important part of what I was doing. Had you worked with policymakers before on this? Yeah, I mean, but in a very different way, right? It's funny, I often describe myself as a skeptical academic. And what I meant by that was I felt like so much of academic work just didn't make a big difference in the world. And I was not interested in a career where I built up my CV and had a great title. I was interested in having a career where I felt like I was moving real stuff in the world that made a difference in people's lives. And so in the health policy work I did for a good chunk of my career, I spent a lot of time in Washington talking to policymakers, trying to understand what their pain points were, trying to understand where data would be useful for them, trying to anticipate what decisions they were going to be having to make and figuring out, can I use data to help them make better decisions? So that was always my mindset as I did my research. Policymakers have a different set of constraints. They often have to make a decision in days or weeks and not in months or years. And it meant, what data can I generate for them? Even if it's not going to be good enough to be published in a major journal, what's good enough to help them make a bit of a better decision? I'm curious, what's it been like to try to implement strategy and think about the political implications for someone like you, who's really, I would say, a scientist at heart? What are the costs of going into public health in this sort of high-profile way? I've been in this job for about seven months. And as you might imagine, it's unlike anything I've done before. So in the past, when I thought about a policy issue, I could sort of pontificate and think out loud I didn't have to worry about constraints. I didn't have to worry about trade-offs. I didn't have to think through the ways in which my ideas could go wrong. I didn't have to think at all about implementation. One of the things that you realize is you can have absolutely brilliant ideas that just cannot be implemented because having a good idea is important, but the constraints are real. After the break, Ashish will tell us about those constraints, how he's tried to deal with them, and when he thinks he might be out of a job. I wake up every morning and think, there are three, 350 Americans dying every single day. And there is so much work to do to drive that number down. I'm Bapu Jenna, and this is Free Economics MD. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. When you're an academic, you can just say things like, we should just do X. Great. How? Now, as I think about trying to move the needle on making sure more people are getting vaccinated or treated, we spend a lot of time thinking about how. Since he became the COVID-19 response coordinator at the White House earlier this year, Dr. Ashish Jha has learned a little something about the way Washington works or doesn't. Like, sometimes you don't have the funding because the administration doesn't actually just get to spend money on whatever it wants. There are other times where you realize you got to bring people along. You have to bring agency leads along. You have to bring stakeholders along. So you begin to appreciate the complexity of the country we live in. You don't always have to get to consensus, but you have to hear people out. It's a very different set of perspectives than what I had a year ago, where I could just think about what do I think is interesting and just tweet it and not have to worry about any of these issues. The biggest of which is, how is this ever actually going to get done? One big recent how that Ashish has grappled with is how to get people to take the bivalent COVID booster vaccine. This latest formulation includes two components, the Omicron BA4 and BA5 subvariants, as well as the original strain of the virus, which is where the term bivalent comes from. As of early November, when I spoke with Ashish, just under 10% of U.S. adults over age 18 had received the updated booster. And even among one of the most at-risk groups, people over 65, uptake has struggled. Just 23% have received the new booster, compared to more than 93% who completed their initial vaccine series. Why has the U.S. struggled to get people to take this new vaccine? Is it a messaging problem? A data problem? Something else? There are several issues here. One is certainly that I think we need to continue to do a better job at explaining to people what the value of these vaccines are. This is a new vaccine, and I'm always reminded whenever companies introduce a new product, it takes a while for that to take hold. And so that's one issue. I think the second is we've got to get people to see this differently. People often say, well, is this your third booster, second booster? What shot is this? You know, when I went and got my flu shot this year, I didn't think, oh, my God, this is my 28th flu booster. I thought, this is my annual flu shot. And I think that's where we are for most people with COVID. I think if we keep plugging away at those things, I think that'll help. There's no question, Bapu, that one of the main challenges has been 
As a country, we don't have an adult vaccination program. We've had to sort of stand that up in this administration. And then last but not least, one of the challenging things is how many people use their platforms to undermine confidence in vaccines. And I think in the long run, that ends up being a major part of the problem as well. So it's a combination of helping people understand it's a different vaccine, resources to run a real vaccination campaign, and then fighting against the tide of misinformation as well. If you had unlimited resources, would you generate different evidence about vaccines or mass or whatever public health intervention we're talking about than exists today? People often ask the question, was there enough evidence for the current bivalent vaccines? And I actually want to make two points on this. Point number one is the decision making on vaccines rests squarely inside the FDA. And there are things that we have like third rails around. And one of them is us sitting at the White House getting involved in decision making at the FDA. Who is the FDA doing this? It's a whole bunch of career scientists. Their assessment was we have enough evidence to authorize these vaccines. And in my mind, and you and I know this, like you don't look at one piece of data to make a decision. You look at the totality of the evidence. And when you look at the totality of the evidence on bivalent vaccines, it's hard not to conclude that it's a good idea to move this forward and to authorize it. And if you're going to give people vaccines in the fall of 2022, that moving to a bivalent is the best strategy. People say, well, you know, wouldn't it have been better if we had all this other additional data? And yeah, it would have taken an additional you know, four or six months to run a large clinical trial. Do we need to run a clinical trial every single time we update our vaccine? I don't think so. I'm not convinced that if we had run a large clinical trial, that that would make a huge difference in the uptake. My sense is that this is not so much an evidence problem, but there's more fundamental things at play here about human behavior and social cohesion and trust that are just going to take time to solve. What's the future hold for COVID? Is it becoming seasonal in your view? Is there a new normal that we're approaching? What's your take on what the next year to two years looks like? In my mind, the evidence suggests there is a seasonality. It's not clearly as tightly seasonal as influenza is. We've seen surges in the spring and summer, but clearly the major surges have come in the fall and winter. It's actually partly why I think most people will be getting an updated COVID vaccine once a year, because even if there is some increase of infections in the spring and summer, for a majority of people, that fall shot will provide enough protection against serious illness that they're not going to need an additional shot. In terms of where the virus is going, I mean, the good news here is 90, 95% of Americans have some immunity against this virus, either from a prior infection or from vaccines. That means that the risk of serious illness is much lower. But we're seeing a lot of very rapid viral evolution. And that evolution is driven by selective pressure on the virus to evolve away from our immunity. And that means, in my mind, that COVID continues to pose a substantial challenge. And, you know, when people say, well, are we at a point where this is like the flu? This is not like the flu. If you just look at the number of people dying every day, and right now we're at a lull of 300, 350 a day, if you annualize that, is 100 to 150,000 deaths a year. That's four or five times worse than a bad flu season. My hope is we keep working on improving vaccines and treatment updates. We continue to defang this virus, make it less and less lethal. 
I think if we do the right things and manage it in the right way, we can really make this a much less serious source of morbidity and mortality for our population. But the work here is not done. I think if we let our foot off the gas and just kind of let it go, I think you're going to see a resurgence and you're going to see a lot more people getting infected and a lot more people getting sick. One of the initial issues, and it could be an issue this winter, is the health system strain. So if we have flu, RSV, COVID, all taking their toll this winter, that could be enormously challenging for healthcare systems. So what is your view on pan-vaccination versus just focusing on COVID? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, something we spent a lot of time thinking about. We pulled in leaders of major health systems and all the major medical societies into the White House in last month to have very deep conversations about how we're going to get through this fall and winter for exactly the reason you outlined. I mean, you know, people talk about the triple-demic of influenza, RSV, and SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. And the fourth element, I would add, is a healthcare workforce that's spent, that's burnt out, that is not going to be able to respond if you say, boy, we just need people to work extra shifts, work more hours. I don't know that the healthcare workforce is going to be able to really do that. That combination really poses risks. So in our messaging, in our work, we've been very clear that people need to get both COVID and flu shots because we think that's really important. In the future, we might see RSV vaccines. Actually, just some data out from Pfizer suggesting that an RSV vaccine may be effective. Again, we'll see where that goes. But no question about it that preventing people getting significantly ill is our number one strategy for getting through this fall and winter because our healthcare system is going to have a very, very hard time managing if all three of these viruses are raging and if people have not gotten vaccines. It's going to be very tough to get through this fall and winter without some serious strains on our healthcare system. It's impossible for Ashish Jha or any of us to know exactly what comes next with COVID. We've all been riding this wave together for nearly three years, and making predictions feels like a fool's errand. Something I do know for sure is that we'll never stop needing public health experts like Ashish. But eventually, and maybe soon, we'll probably stop needing a White House COVID-19 response coordinator. When? It's a question people ask, and I don't have an answer because I actually haven't spent that much time thinking about it. I wake up every morning and think, like, there are three, 350 Americans dying every single day. And there is so much work to do to drive that number down. There's a ton of work to do in thinking about transition, building a whole new generation of vaccines and treatments, making sure that we are, as a country, much better prepared to manage this virus over the long run. I would love to work myself out of a job. (laughs) We should be doing things and institutionalizing things in a way that COVID becomes more and more into the background. And we as a country are just able to manage it more and more effectively with fewer and fewer deaths. And there will come a time when it'll feel like, okay, the moment is right. That moment is not now. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank my friend and guest, Ashish Jha, for making time for us in his busy schedule. It's been a while since we shared an audience and it was good to catch up. And thanks to you, as always, for listening. Here's an idea to leave you with. Sometimes the questions that scientists are trying to answer are rooted in behaviors that people care about deeply. I'm thinking about things like masking, school closures, and lockdowns. There are scientific ways to study their effects, but people's views can impact how they evaluate the science. Here's an example. 
Let's say a new study shows masking helps reduce spread of COVID-19 in schools. If you've supported masking in schools, would you be less critical of the study? Maybe even give it a free pass. Or instead, suppose you believe that masks don't help. Would you be more critical of the study? It's an interesting idea to explore. How objective are scientists? How objective are the rest of us? On a completely different note, and speaking of research, we know that people typically take advice on which podcast to listen to based on recommendations from people they know and trust. So go find someone who knows and trusts you and tell them to subscribe to Freakonomics MD. Coming up next week, more than 6 million people in the U.S. currently live with Alzheimer's disease, and that number is expected to more than double by 2050. A few months ago, we told you why effective treatments that could address symptoms or slow disease progression have eluded researchers for over a century. You know, the time to put out the fire is when it's on the stove, not when the whole house is on fire. We'll revisit our discussion with Dr. Pierre Theriot, an Alzheimer's disease expert who, like many of his colleagues, believes that intervening before symptoms even start could keep the disease at bay. Are they right? And after decades of disappointing results, is it time to consider new approaches? There are lots of other shots on goal for the treatment or prevention of Alzheimer's disease. We'll also tell you about some new developments in the field of Alzheimer's research since this episode first aired. That's all coming up next week on Freakonomics MD. Thanks again for listening. Freakonomics MD is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, and People I Mostly Admire. All our shows are produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. You can find us on Twitter at Dr. Bapu Pod. This episode was produced by Julie Canfer and mixed by Eleanor Osborne with help from Jasmine Klinger. Our staff also includes Neil Carruth, Gabriel Roth, Greg Rippin, Lyric Bowditch, Rebecca Lee Douglas, Morgan Levy, Zach Lipinski, Ryan Kelly, Catherine Mancure, Jeremy Johnston, Daria Klenert, Emma Terrell, Alina Coleman, Elsa Hernandez, and Stephen Dubner. Original music composed by Luis Guerra. If you like this show or any other show in the Freakonomics Radio Network, please recommend it to your family and friends. That's the best way to support the podcasts you love. As always, thanks for listening. I don't know how to turn my video off. I should say, Ashish, you never used to be that guy who couldn't turn the video off. Hey. <laughs> wow. Wow, it's getting very uncomfortable in here. Freakonomics Radio Network, the hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. 
Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today.